Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. This week, we are rerunning one of our favorite and one of our audience's uh, most beloved episodes for the Halloween season, the first of our creepy pasta experiment episodes. Yeah, creepy pasta, little strange nuggets of uh, often unattributed horror fiction on the internet. We take them apart. We look at some science that ties into them and just discuss what creepypasta is in general. Yeah, we'll get into it throughout the episode. We introduce you to what creepypastas are, and then we take a couple of them. We look at the science behind them. A couple things we wanted to let you know beforehand. There is actually a second creepypasta episode. If you like this one and you want to hear more, we have one about Jeff the Killer. And we are going to be recording a third one for the October Halloween season sometime in the next few weeks. So yeah. hopefully you will see that from us soon. Yeah, and the the stories we cover in it, the pastas we cover in it, are TBD. So if there's one that's just really, really just grinding away at your mind that you want us to to tease apart, let us know and maybe we'll cover it. Yeah, absolutely. I just read two new ones today, and I'm already uh, the gears are going. I'm already thinking about how we can take these apart. But please let us know. You got one that you think is perfect for the show? Send us an email. Write us on social media. All right, without further ado, creepypasta. Today we're talking about creepypasta, which uh, I imagine there are three different responses out there. Some people are probably going, ooh, ooh creepypasta, I love creepypasta. Other people are going, uh, creepypasta, what are you doing covering that? And other people are just flat up asking, what the heck yeah. is creepypasta? Is creepypasta is it, al dente? Like yeah. The- <laughs> is, it, yeah, is it the texture or the, is it pasta that's shaped like little ghosts? Like, that's what yeah. entered my mind when I first started hearing about it uh, a few years back. But uh, what? Uh, let's explain what creepy pasta is for everyone who's not familiar. Right. Okay. So I'm only recently familiar with this uh, phenomenon, but apparently around 2006, uh, a a sort of fad, I guess, meme started up uh, on the internet called copy pasta, and I think it originated on 4chan and then splintered off into several different genres in different areas. the The basic idea, though, is that you're creating uh, content that's like copy and pasted into an email or maybe on a blog or something like that, right? It's something that's like easily accessible and shareable. Yeah. And it's, I think the two most ubiquitous examples of this, first of all, emails from your grandma or your uncle. Yeah. Where like some, chain letters. Yeah. Some sort of yeah. ridiculous story about, you know, somebody's putting diseased needles into convenience, uh, store machines, you know, <laughs> or, or, oh, watch out for, hoodlums throwing eggs at your car or people turning their lights on and off. You know, there's always some sort of like, oh, it's gang activity or or some sort of weird horror going on in your daily life where you could could possibly believe it. But if you actually research it, you'll see, oh, this is just a, a the same couple of paragraphs have been copy and pasted throughout the history of the Internet. And we just keep falling for it again and again. And. Creepy pasta is sort of the horror iteration of copy pasta yeah. in that it pretends to be like an urban legend or like a, a pseudo real life event that happened, but it's told as a horror story. Yeah, and I think some of the you can definitely see some creepy pasta 
in the uh, copy pasta uh, that you you see yeah. in some of those emails. You know, where it's ultimately you're talking about some sort of folkloric, modern folkloric horror theme uh, that's wrapped in enough reality or pseudo reality that you buy into it. Yeah, they all sort of play off of these authentic aesthetics using like they mimic things uh, like documents of real life. It's almost like the found footage of prose. Like mm-hmm. uh there's diary entries, witness statements, sometimes there's image and video files. And as we're going to talk about today, many of them take the shape of scientific reports or like lab analysis. Yeah. Uh, and so what we thought we would do today is look at some of the most popular scientific based creepypastas and then look at the, the, the plausibility and the real life connections of the, the science that they posit. Yeah. And I want to, you definitely imagine some big, uh, quotation marks around scientifically based there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but as we'll get into. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some, <laughs> there's some very loose stuff when they just say, a stimulating gas was presented, right? Yeah. There's no, they don't name the gas. They don't give any methodology or anything, but some of them are better than others. Yeah. And we'll, we'll get into that as well. It's, um, one thing to keep in mind with copy pasta too, and I'm uh, especially creepy pasta are the different ways that you come across it online. Like right. there are definite creepy pasta destinations for people who love reading it and creating it. And they're just kind of wikis for this. And we'll have some yeah. links to these stories on the landing page for this episode. at So you can explore that on your own, but you'll also see stuff showing up on social media or you're doing like we encountered this uh, plenty of times. You're doing some research. You're trying to find out about certain actual experiments and then you run across some creepypasta yeah. and for a split second you're like what is this experiment they're talking about oh yeah. it's creepypasta yeah it is kind of perfect and especially researching this particular episode was difficult because mm-hmm. when you're trying to research the actual scientific uh, basis for some of these stories you end up finding either fake articles or or the actual story itself yeah. popping up in a lot of your searches I've also seen uh, like wiki questions and message boards oh, see, yeah. see this kind Kind of stuff popping up there where someone will like have a legitimate yeah people have a legitimate question and somebody will decide to throw a slip a little pasta in there <laughs> right, you know? right. like I've, I've seen medical uh, question sites uh, where someone will be talking I think I was writing something that had to do with uh, about pro- about prostates uh-huh. and prostate exams and I, I ran across this message board where Somebody was asking, hey, what can I expect when I go in there? Yeah. And then somebody had this ridiculous story that they shared. <laughs> and then yeah. another individual pointed, responded and said, oh, this is pasta. Here's an example of where it was sure. previously uh, rolled out. And I think that's where I first discovered oh, yeah. the, the term copy pasta. Yeah, I mean, like in today's age of like uh, what, what we are often told is uh, in, in our daily jobs is user generated content, right? Where like the user is commenting or, or creating something on their own. This is the perfect kind of thing to slip in there, right? Yeah. Like in an Amazon review, you could drop in some creepypasta related to whatever item it is that's, uh, that's on sale and, and you give it a five star review, but let people know that it was haunted or something when you got it in the mail. Yeah. It's kind of like the creepy mold that grows, uh, on, uh, you know, on the, the structures mm-hmm. of the internet and throughout the, the systems <laughs> of the internet. And some of it is just merely mold. <laughs> sometimes. Just, but sometimes it's exquisite, and it's fun to look at and feel. But I think, so, um, people who maybe aren't familiar with the creepypasta genre, you might actually know uh, the, the most famous of the creepypasta characters or stories is the Slenderman one. 
Uh, and I don't know a ton about Slender Man other than what I've read about him outside of the creepypastas he appears in. But basically the idea is that he's kind of like a, he's a horror story uh, character, right? He's just as much as like Jason Voorhees or, or Freddy Krueger, but he's kind of like an, uh, elongated, skinny, scary looking man in like a suit. Yeah, you see, the, the, like the the reason, one of the reasons Slender Man is such a, a nice example of copy pasta is that he's co- kind of collectively assembled. He's an amalgam of pop culture influences, and and ultimately the the final form is very amorphous too, because yeah. some because a lot of it is about his depictions in individual pieces of creepy pasta, or especially in imagery and these various Photoshop contests that have contributed. Uh, to uh, to the mythos, right? Yeah, that's one of the ones where there's a lot of visual uh, accompaniment. Yeah, right? like a lot of a lot of Slenderman revolves around the the pictures that people have created that are just terrifying. Yeah, and there's no real consensus on like exactly what the story is. Like nobody yeah. said this is what Slenderman is. Right, the rules is of Slenderman. Yeah, and that helps to make it mysterious and 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 weird. I mean, that's one of the reasons that uh, Lovecraft's uh, mythos continues to resonate. Is that there's yeah. Individuals have come along and tried to create a boilerplate, uh, uh, you know, mythos for him, but ultimately his mythos is shrouded in mystery and contradictions. Absolutely, and so uh, included in that, and I'd be remiss if we or we'd be remiss if we didn't include this, is that you may have also heard in the news that there was an inspired violent assault by two 12-year-old girls against another 12-year-old girl. They were trying to murder her in inspiration. They were inspired by Slenderman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, to clarify, like the owners of creepypasta.com, many of the people who are involved in this community, they all, you know, released a state statements basically saying like they, this was not their intention. They didn't want to be connected to this at all. It was more just kind of a fun pop culture thing for them to have a community around. Right. But these girls somehow took it internally and uh and ended up almost killing their friend. Luckily she escaped and was uh I think she was stabbed like seventeen or nineteen times or something like that. She was found by somebody on the side of the road and was able to get medical care. Well I mean it just speaks to the 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 power of storytelling, the the power of folklore and the power the power of symbols, you know? I mean anybody can create a story, and oftentimes the story's not going to be that good. But yeah. you're playing with powerful elements when you start playing with with established tropes and established symbols, established symbols of fear, and uh, even a, you know a, a very amateur creator can, can end up creating something that strongly resonates. And I mean that's the, yeah. the beauty of uh, of something like creepypasta. Yeah, it is. And and I also like I think that it would be. Uh, really like off the mark to say that like oh it's because of slender man that this happened you know mm-hmm. i mean clearly like there was something going on with these girls anyways uh it, that's like the argument that like ozzy osbourne influenced teenagers to kill each other in the 80s or something you know yeah. i just i don't buy into it but i think it's important that we let the audience know about that um creepy pasta really kind of hit its height in 2010 because the new york times actually uh covered it and did an article on it um but, you know, a lot of it resembles what um, we we refer to as weird fiction, right? Yeah, you see, I mean, it kind of runs the gamut because on on one end of the spectrum, you have creepypasta that reads like a either either like a Wikipedia article or a, per, or a poorly written Wikipedia article. Yeah. Where it's just very factual, very grounded in this objective reporting style. 
And then on the other hand, stuff that is aspiring more and more to resemble weird fiction, you know, something with more of a narrative flow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as a both a fan of horror prose and somebody who writes horror prose, I guess my personal literary criticism here is just that the best of these always ends up still reading kind of like a Wikipedia entry, right? So there's no... There's no craft to the prose necessarily that you would find in something that's designed for literature. It's mostly just a summary of the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it can be done artfully. Um, so it, in such a way to make it seem like it was a real thing, right? Uh, if it's done as such, then it can have a, a, a pretty sustaining dread that goes along with it. Um, so there are some of these that I like better than others, uh, like any kind of, you know, um, uh, medium or storytelling. But, uh, I have to say, <laughs> and I want to warn our listeners, if you, if you haven't read any of these yet, a lot of the grammar and spelling is, is just horrible in these. Like they need a proofreader to just go over each <laughs> of these. Although I guess that that could potentially be part of the, the charm, right? Is that like, it's been written by somebody who hasn't taken the time to proofread and go back and fix errors, and therefore it seems more authentic. Sometimes when you've been horrified by your participation in a frightening paranormal experiment, you know, mm-hmm. you, you're less uh, less attentive to grammar. That's that, that's <laughs> possible for sure. Uh, I, I do want to say one more thing. I want to throw a plug out there for our colleagues. So a lot of people don't know this, but uh, our How Stuff Works colleagues, including our producer Noel, who's on the board right now. Uh, Lauren Vogelbaum from Forward Thinking and, uh, Ben Bolin and Matt Frederick from Stuff They Don't Want You to Know all got together and put together what I would call a creepypasta audio play. Uh, it's called See You Next Time and they did it for the Atlanta Fringe Festival and it's about like a 30 minute MP3 that you can go and download from their site. So go, if, if you're into that kind of thing, like if you're like a Welcome to Night Vale kind of person, uh, go download that and check it out because it's all how stuff works, characters and personalities. In fact, Joe and I both make very minor appearances in the story just as like kind of extras, but, uh, really well done and it was like one of my favorite horror stories from this past year. Oh, cool. Yeah, we'll include a link to that on the landing page for this episode. Um, in terms of, back to, to Creepypasta, though, yeah. the, um, like I find that the, the ones that are instantly uh, grounded in in more of a traditional storytelling, like, you know, where the, the, the narrator is saying, what I have to relate to you about this experiment is terrifying, <laughs> you, you instantly know you're reading the story. Right. But I guess the... the and then to your point, if it reads entirely like a Wikipedia piece, then it's it runs the risk of just being completely dry. Right. Um, it can still be engaging, but I, I think the probably the sweet spot is if you can have it start dry and seemingly factual mm-hmm. and objective, and then have it morph into something uh, that that uh, that is more uh, elegantly uh, written, and yeah. then maybe steer back out of it. And yeah, it builds. Yeah. Yeah. I think another thing that, that is key with these as well is, is the format. So like the mimicking of a, of a particular kind of format to, uh, to create the authenticity type thing, like, like ones that mimic actual Wikipedia entries are kind of using that format to their advantage, right? right. Whereas like if it's just a chain of prose that shows up in my email sent to me by my weird aunt, then I'm less likely to go, Oh, this, 
could potentially be a thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and another thing too that's probably worth noting is that like part of our job for the podcast and other things is to evaluate sources yeah. <laughs> and evaluate validity of things. And so inherently I think for, for people like us reading these things, we're automatically like, wait a minute. I need some more evidence. I need more information. Where are the sources cited? Yeah, one of the early examples of just just um, recording folklore uh, that I think has some some potential ties into creepypasta is um, a book called uh, "Strange Stories from a Chinese Studio." Yeah, by uh, Lao Zizi from uh, 18th century China. Uh, each of these tales that uh, that the author relates, they all they all start the same and they all kind of end the same. Where he's saying, "I knew this particular individual, and and he works over in this province and works in this office." And he told me this story about this encounter he had. And then the encounter might be seeing a strange, like, pin dragon or seeing, or encountering a horrifying ghost or having right. some sort of mildly body, hilarious encounter. And then it will end again with him firmly tucking it back into reality by saying, and this particular acquaintance of mine, uh, he uh, continued to have a great career in this province, and I still hear from him from time to time. Yeah, know? the the idea I think there, maybe it was conscious or not, was sort of taking the oral tradition of folklore and translating it into prose. Somehow. Yeah. I think you see that with a lot of early weird fiction as well, like Arthur Macon. Uh, you mentioned Lovecraft earlier, uh, to an extent like Algernon Blackwood, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, you have to sort of you have this nugget of uh, of the fantastic, and you need to to tuck it in firmly into the bed of uh, of our uh, our informational system, really. And in this case, it's the uh, the internet. Yeah, absolutely. They're using the medium to its advantage. So, okay, so we're going to talk about three particular creepypasta science experiments. And we'll, we'll, we'll give you the premise. We'll lay it down for you. Uh, it's going to be a very shorthand version of it. And then, you know, if you want to go read them on the, on your own, uh, and then we will take a look at the science behind these. Yeah. All right. Well, let's kick it off with probably the, the more famous of the three, the one, the one that seems to, to hit up there at the top of the list, uh, on most of these creepypasta sites, the Russian sleep experiment. Right. So, okay, the premise of this, I'm going to try to go through this pretty quickly. Premise of this story is that in the late 1940s, there was a Russian researcher, or it was a research team, I believe, who kept five people awake for 15 days using what's only referred to as an experimental gas-based stimulant. So we have no idea whatever this chemical was. Okay. Uh, the research team kept them in a sealed environment, and monitored their oxygen intake. I don't know how. It's never explained in the story. Uh, but basically because this gas was potentially, uh, I think it was toxic in high concentrations. Okay. As the story goes. Uh, because they didn't have video equipment at the time, they watched these uh, participants through portholes and they listened, listened in with microphones. But basically the chamber they're in was stocked up with, you know, the things that they would need, uh, like books and cots, running water, a toilet. They had enough dried food in there for a month. Uh, and they were all political prisoners that were deemed enemy of the state, enemies of the state during World War II. But they were falsely told before they went in, hey, if you do this experiment and you can manage to sleep or not sleep for 30 days straight, then we will uh, free you and we'll forgive your actions. Uh, So the story goes like this. First five days, these people are fine. Uh, After about day four, though, their conversations start to get a little dark. Uh, 
They start getting paranoid of one another. By day nine, one of them starts screaming and running up and down the length of the chamber. And he screams so loud that he physically tears the vocal cords, his vocal cords. The others begin to just start whispering into the microphones, uh, not even acknowledging that the, the other guy is screaming. Then a second one starts screaming and running around. These two uh, take the books that are in the room, rip their pages out, cover them with their own feces, and paste them up over the porthole windows. Uh, so the studio we're in right now actually has a porthole window. So. Yeah, I was actually just thinking this is a, this is like what happens when you try to record four podcast episodes in a single uh-huh. day. Yeah, absolutely. I begin the screaming and running around. Uh, <laughs> day 12, all the sounds stop. Uh, and the oxygen consumption rate rises to what is, uh, you know, understood as heavy exercise levels for the five people. Okay. On day 14, they use the intercom and they try to, you know, contact them and figure out what's going on inside this room. They get one response, which is, we no longer want to be freed. On day 15, they're finally like, all right, we're going in there. They open up this chamber and they send soldiers in. They find that one of the guys is dead. The rest of them are all crazy. They've uh, eaten themselves, ripped their own skin off, removed some of their own organs from their bodies. Uh, Very, like, uh, gory body horror type stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, They really wanted to go to stay in the chamber like they were addicted to this gas. Uh, One of them, the minute they take him out of the chamber, he bleeds to death immediately. Uh, And they find when they're trying to resuscitate him that he's uh, utterly resistant to morphine. Uh, one assaults and kills one of the soldier. I think there's like another thing about like another one, like biting a soldier's leg and taking a chunk out of it. And then like some more padding. That's like all of the soldiers committed suicide within five days or something like that. Uh, and then <laughs> this part didn't make sense to me, even in the like narrative of the story, but they, uh, they sewed the skin back on to one of these victims. Oh yeah. Like uh, you do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to try to save him, I guess. Uh, and they tried it with one of the others, the other survivors, but they just kept laughing so much during the surgery process that they couldn't pull it off. So, uh, it ends up with them being put back in the chamber because there's some higher up who says, you know, we got to figure out what's going on. So they put these guys back in the chamber. Uh, they turn up the gas. Their brainwaves start fluctuating between normal and then flatlining as if they're dead. They try putting three of the researchers in there with them, but one of the researchers grabs a gun and shoots his commander and then shoots the captives. Right before he kills the last captive, the captive says this, We are you. We are the madness that lurks within you all, begging to be free at every moment in your deepest animal mind. We are what you hide from in your beds every night. We are what you sedate into silence and paralysis when you go to the nocturnal haven where we cannot tread. And that's the end of the creepypasta. All right. Like most of these experiments, it ends in madness and death and uh, and some inkling of uh, the world beyond the veil, right? Yeah, I think you're going to find that like there's a common theme of science experiment, people go crazy, kill everybody, and then say something eerie. Yeah, like we we're saying, if you if you were to find the published peer-reviewed studies for each of these, <laughs> you yeah. would be able to skip down to the conclusions, and they would say, yeah, and everybody went mad, and we had to put down the, uh, the inmates. Right, right. Yeah, I'd love to see the IRB for these, the Institutional Review Board, like, like looking at this, like, wait, you're gonna do what now? (laughs) 
All right. So what's the basically at heart here, though, we're dealing with the science of sleep deprivation. Yeah, there have been a number of studies that have looked at this. So what happens when you stay awake for extended periods of time? How can we make ourselves stay awake for extended periods of time and and still function properly? Right. So what we know about sleep deprivation, and I'm sure many of you out there have experienced some form or another of this, right? Like last night I got one hour less than my normal, however many eight mm-hmm. hours a night that I get. And I'm a little, uh, a little logy, I think is the term <laughs> this morning. Uh, but the basic breakdown of it goes like this. Uh, we know that we our alertness lowers, right? Uh, we have trouble concentrating. If you even lose 90 minutes of sleep in one night compared to your average sleep schedule, you'll be 32% less alert the next day. So I'm somewhere in that 32% range today. Um, 41% of U.S. drivers, this is a scary part, scarier, I think, than the creepypasta, uh, 41% of U.S. drivers admit to falling asleep behind the wheel because of this lack of alertness. It also totally screws up our circadian rhythm. Uh, so our body can't keep the correct time when we haven't slept the right way. It's as if you're jet lagged, uh, which makes sense. Uh, and we actually, on our sister show, uh, Brain Stuff, have done both episodes on what happens when you don't sleep and what happens with jet lag. And there's some really interesting stuff about jet lag in relation to uh, light entering our eyes and how it interacts with our brains. <clears throat> so if you want to dive in more, there's stuff there. But uh, because the circadian rhythm is impaired, our motor skills are also impaired, and our hormones start to rise and fall in these just very inappropriate ways. We also lose memory. That's a common symptom of this. So uh, what we know is that when we sleep, it consolidates our memories, basically takes the things that happen to us, and it organizes it in such a way that helps our cognitive function. Yeah, it's kind of like a defragging of the human Absolutely. computer. And uh, if you're not running your defragment, uh, defrag, and if you're not running your defragger uh, appropriately and enough, then uh, everything gets a bit uh, screwed up up there. Yeah, it, it, um, in fact, like, uh, you, you start losing recall. You can even create false memories and it lowers your just general ability to process information. Yeah. Uh, and then this is a quote directly from our How Stuff Works article on the effects of sleep deprivation. Uh, quote, when we learn and store information in our memory, that information is moved from the hippocampus, which we know is the memory creating region of our brain, to the prefrontal cortex, specifically the neocortex region, which is where we form and store long-term memories. So you can see kind of biologically how this would start to affect memory. There's also a process going on where our body's glymphatic system cleans out our nervous system while we're sleeping. But if you don't sleep, all of this waste, I guess, or trash mm-hmm. <laughs> starts to build up. And but by trash, what I mean is it's cerebrospinal fluid that's filled with proteins and toxins. It doesn't get flushed out of your system. So subsequently, you've got that stuff floating around in there, too. And all of this can lead to a speeding up of the progression of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Yeah, it's it's important to note here uh, and to stress here that when 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 sleep deprivation is taking place, it's really messing with the chemistry of the brain, the functioning of the brain, and ultimately our perceptions of reality, both objective reality and subjective reality. Oh, yeah. Playing with our memories, our perceptions of the past. Uh, Hallucinations are yeah. absolutely a symptom. Yeah. So we're we're it's 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 ultimately a very nightmaric. Uh, 
scenario, not to, you know, certainly not out of keeping with uh, the realm of creepypasta and horror. Oh, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that's one of the things that's probably why this particular one is one of the most popular is mm-hmm. that it's something at their core, the sciencey creepypastas work best when it's something that almost everyone can identify with. Yeah. So lack of sleep is something that I think every person reading it can kind of imagine. Yeah, sleep is that realm of mystery, and there ha- there is enough science out there, even if one is not that familiar with it. It's uh, you can you can certainly at least see it there on the internet. You know that there yeah. have been re- there's been research into sleep. You know there are sleep institutes that that work with people who have trouble. Um. One of the the side effects of the, the sleep deprivation as well is something that we've covered here on the show before is sleep paralysis. So I know you've done a video on it. And it, was there a previous podcast episode about sleep paralysis? Oh, it's, it's come up a, yeah, it's come up a lot. Like any time I've covered something related to supernatural experience. Yeah. Um, Sleep paralysis is always up there as a possible explanation for encounters with aliens, encounters with ghosts. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I'll make sure we link to some resources on the landing page for this episode. But, you know, essentially it's a situation where when you go to sleep, your body's put on lockdown so that if right. you get in a kung fu fight with a bear in your dream, you won't throw any kung fu strikes at uh, the person sleeping next to you. Right. But in sleep paralysis, you wake up with your mind, your eyes open, but your body's still on lockdown. And you're in this, this also in this weird phase between dream and reality where uh, you're highly susceptible to hallucination. Yeah, and in fact, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm hoping to watch it this week. Um, have you heard about The Nightmare? It's this documentary that's all about sleep paralysis. This is the one from the guys who did the... Um, room 237? The room, yeah, the Room 237. Yeah, it's the same creative team from Room 237, and I've heard that it is horrifying. It's a documentary. This is not a fictional film, but mm-hmm. as we know from you know researching sleep paralysis in the past... Just the the examples of what people think is happening to them can be utterly terrifying. Yeah, because you you often have to your brain is referring back to pre existing scripts for what you're encountering. You're hearing or seeing something out of the ordinary, and your brain has to make sense of it. And so it will turn to that uh, that episode of the X Files that you saw, yeah. or maybe it will think back to some creepy pasta that you read on the internet and use that to inform what you're experiencing. So before I go into more symptoms about, uh, I, I guess, sleep depth. Let's tie it back to that creepypasta story about the Russian sleep experiment. Okay. Then. So, yes, hallucinations are possible. Uh, so I guess you could say that there's a potential for going crazy or at least losing the ability to distinguish reality mm-hmm. from fantasy. Right. Um, and then sleep paralysis plays into that as well, although they wouldn't be like tearing their or- organs out and stuff like that if they had sleep paralysis. Yeah, I don't think you'd go full Hellraiser. Right. So, okay, uh, the other really big thing that has a, a multiple effects on your body when you don't get sleep is that your genes aren't as efficient at handing out instructions to your body. So we call this genetic expression. And it causes all kinds of things. There's weight fluctuations. In fact, there was a 1984 study that showed that people who have less than seven to nine hours a night of sleep are more likely to be overweight. Uh, and it, and it, I won't go into all the numbers here, but basically the idea is like the less sleep you get, the more likely you, you are to be overweight. Uh, when you're forced to stay awake, what happens is your body has trouble processing blood sugar and leptin, which is this protein hormone that regulates our appetite and our metabolism. 
system. Uh, and this can lead to type 2 diabetes, can lead to weight gain, and due to your decreased ability to process sugar, you're not as easily able to suppress your food cravings. So, you know, if you're like me, you're going to the fridge and having a lot of ice cream late at night. Uh, it can also lead to illness, so sleep deprivation diminishes our immune system, which sometimes leads to serious or chronic illness. Blood pressure becomes a problem. If you have less than six hours of sleep a night, it puts you at high risk for high blood pressure. This starts overtaxing your heart. Also, your brain doesn't have as much time to regulate the stress hormones that are moving around in there, which also leads to higher blood pressure. And then finally, death is a symptom of not sleeping. So, and I don't mean that like if you don't sleep, you'll just drop dead. Uh, in fact, you die at a rate of two times faster than people who have normal sleeping patterns if you're sleep deprived. And we can look to uh, certain experiments with animals on this. Some animals certainly die without proper sleep. Uh, sleep deprivation in rodents and flies can cause death more quickly than food deprivation. Uh, specifically, two weeks without sleep can kill a lab rat. Yeah. Okay. So, and that's about as long as the creepypasta experiment went on for. They were in there for about 15 days before they yeah. started uh, ripping their skin off. And there was all kinds of super gory stuff in that story. That Also, like, uh, inappropriate Amazon purchases. That was another thing. Oh, really? That, uh, in the Russian yeah. sleep experiment. Did, yeah. Oh, they had internet in, the, in 1949 yeah, yeah. Before or whatever they ripped the, the, the skin off, they started uh, making inappropriate uh, online purchases uh, just because they I were believe in a, an altered state. Yeah. <laughs> They're buying, like, curtains made of human skin. (laughs) Okay, so there's another scientific aspect to this story as well, right? And that is the, quote, experimental gas-based stimulant. Okay, which could, I guess, be almost anything. It could be anything. And so it's a little difficult for us to kind of narrow it down and say, well, the actual effects would be this. But I thought it was worth just kind of touching on Mm -hmm. what gas does to our bodies, right? So any type of gas... Chlorine, sulfur dioxide, hydrogen sulfide, nitrogen dioxide, ammonia, you name it. They're going to irritate your lungs. And some of them dissolve immediately. And, uh, you know, that's when you experience the irritation in your mouth, nose, and throat. I mean, like, if you think about it, like, when you go to the gas station, you're pumping your gas and you're inhaling stuff. That's kind of a version of this, right? Yeah. Um. But the ones that don't easily dissolve, they don't produce early warning signs. And this can lead to things like fluid developing in your lungs and airway. They can also trigger allergic responses. These kind of responses can scar your lungs, maybe leading to chronic bronchitis. If the gas is radioactive, of course, it can lead to cancer. And if there's body poisoning, it's going to poison your body's cells, right? So if it's a poisonous gas, that's going to be lethal to you as well. Uh, and it'll, what it'll end up doing is displacing the oxygen that's in your blood so you, you have less oxygen reaching your tissues. Carbon monoxide itself doesn't appear to have any kind of neurological effects, but levels below 13% of, like if you're exposed to it, can de- decrease your mental performance. And one other study that I found said that mustard gas affects mental health, even for people who have been exposed to it, like, uh, t- up to 25 years after their exposure. However, they usually qualify that as like PTSD because their exposure to the mustard gas was probably in a traumatic situation oh, yeah. like war. 
Um, so all that is to say is that yes, gas has physical effects on your body and there are some connections to mental problems, I guess, but, but not like within 15 days you'd go absolutely insane and start ripping off your skin. Maybe we just haven't found the right chemical yet. Maybe so. We, you know, we haven't stumbled across the, the right, uh, uh, experiment, declassified experiment from, uh, World War II era Russian history. Now this next, uh, bit of, uh, creepypasta, I, I found this one a lot of fun. This is, I think I, I probably like this one the most of the ones that, w- that we looked at here mm-hmm. for this episode. Uh, in short, this one involves a supposed 1944 British secret intelligence service experiment aimed at modifying human blood. Uh, here's a quote. The chemical would modify the blood's chemical properties and structure so that if shot or cut, the blood would have the ability to freeze or solidify to where the person was shot. This would stop bleeding and can make a person far stronger than an average human being. Now, of course, as you... As you, you know, can expect, the experiment gets all dark and monstrous, uh, mm-hmm. turning the test subjects into gray-skinned, blood-eyed, jelly-blooded, thick-skinned cannibals that run amok. And as such, uh, they end up putting them all down, shutting down the experiment, and deciding not to um, alter the blood of British soldiers. So I think I might have read a different version than you, because mine ended with them escaping. Oh, yeah? And it huh. was like, these crazy super soldiers are out there somewhere okay. and they're homicidal and they could get you. Maybe there are a couple of versions of it. That's the, the beauty of creepypasta is that <clears throat> yeah. uh, it, it can change. It's amorphous. It's uh, it's a collective uh, uh, creative uh, uh, scenario. I kept thinking of them as being basically Wolverine from the X-Men. Like ah. like they they all their wounds heal immediately, right? Because the the I think one of the things is like immediately after this test, they like stab him in the leg and then shoot him in the arm to see what happens. And like the wounds seal up immediately. Right. But it also makes them kind of feral and and crazy and try to kill everybody. Yeah. I kind of pictured him looking like uh, creatures from a tool video running amok. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I loved about this particular one is is how much it uh, adhered to the idea of it being an actual lab report. It said a copy of this lab report can be found somewhere deep within the old MI5 building in London. I like that the idea like everybody who lives in London knows about the old MI5 building. Yeah, you can just pop by and just go down and check out the files. Yeah. That's that's why they're there. Uh, And they actually name three chemicals, as opposed to the Russian study, they actually name the chemicals that these guys are exposed to. Nomofungin, Mm-hmm. Peproforamidine okay. and communicin. However, in my version, it was misspelled as communism. So it was like they were exposed to these two chemicals and communism. Well, maybe uh, commune isn't. Wait, what is it? Communicin? Maybe communicin is uh, is is a, a drug that causes communism. It could it's a be communism inducing. <laughs> it, you know what? That would possibly have as much validity as the rest of this story. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I feel like like that was one of the drugs in RoboCop 2 or something. You're right. Yeah. Well, the idea that they said here was that those chemicals modified uh, human blood chemical properties, allowing them to solidify or freeze when the body is damaged. And they list a couple of other things that they do to solidify the blood. So I just want to mention these quickly because this is kind of their scientific basis for things. Uh, they increase the blood plasma in the subjects 
removed the thrombocytes from their blood, modified the medulla oblongata in their brain so that it would be familiar with the modified blood cells, and then they removed 4 to 6% of their blood volume because, I guess, the idea being that once they've done all this other stuff, their blood is thicker mm-hmm. and subsequently like takes up more space in their circulatory system. Uh, and they also said that they weren't allowed to give any food or painkillers to the subjects for at least 24 hours, which I, I like because that's basically what they do to you when you like go in for prep surgery anyways. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, the doctors, uh, after the experiment determined that the pH value of the blood in these guys was lower than normal. Uh, and they think the chemical caused aggression by modifying the medulla oblongata. So this is where I want to start with the science on this one, because I, you know, within five minutes was able to look up that the medulla oblongata doesn't really have a whole lot to do with our emotion and aggression. In fact, this is the, you know, it's commonly known as the brainstem. It controls our reflexes and autonomic functions, uh, limb movements, visceral functions. It's basically, you know, things like blood pressure, ah, breathing. There you go. Oh, that's all you need. Blood pressure. It ties into blood. Ding. Aggression. <laughs> but so, uh, yeah, uh, I- unless they're like, uh, you know, discovering new things about that part of the brain that we don't necessarily know, I don't know that that, that would have been the cause. If I was on the um, the review committee for this uh, academic article, I would probably point that out. Now, it's also worth noting uh, here that this is not to be confused with the Luftwaffe's uh, freezing experiments, right. the hypothermia that took place at uh, Dachau and Auschwitz uh, uh, during the Second World War. Uh, those were actually dealing with what happens when the body, body freezes. This is ultimately about uh, coagulation, right, and, and mm-hmm. healing and what, how, to, how our, our bodies heal and what we can do to speed that process up, especially as far as internal bleeding goes. Right. And... There has been some interesting research in this area. Researchers trying to figure out ways to to to, to speed up uh, coagulation, speed up healing, and, and deal, especially with military scenarios where you need to you need to take care of either a need for blood or a need for for blood to do its job. Yeah, deep down. If you follow like science and tech feeds, like mm-hmm. like like we do for work, you you end up seeing a lot of these. I'd say at least once a week, there's some kind of update on. Uh, either something that's designed to seal a wound faster or, you know, affect the blood as such. But yeah. It's always showing up in our video games it. too. Yes. Like <laughs> I, I started playing, uh, the latest Metal Gear thing. Oh yeah. Phantom Pain. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Or it's like Ground Zero. I think it's the one. It's like oh, Ground Zero is like yeah. the prequel. It's like right? free this month. So yeah. I checked it out and, okay. and you get wounded to a certain amount and you like spray your wound with a little air. Uh huh. Yeah. But, um, the, the first uh, bit to, to discuss here about Blood science and kind of cool blood science is, uh, there's a, a Cleveland, Ohio biotech firm called, uh, Arteriocyte and they made headlines in 2010 with the development of an artificial genetically engineered blood for use on the battlefield. So we're talking typo negative, of course, here, universal blood donor, because you're going to make artificial blood. Right. Be right. Everybody universal. should be able to use it. Yeah. And this would allow for mobile blood banks in war zones. You wouldn't have to worry about shortages back home and then lengthy shipments that decrease the shelf life for the blood samples. Mm-hmm. You need, you need blood on the, on the field, say in Afghanistan, then you have a machine that'll help create it, right? Now, presumably, yeah, that's my question, I guess, is that like, are they creating this on site in the, uh, 
in a battlefield scenario, or is it like they created an America and then they ship just all of this genetically engineered blood to wherever the war zone is? I think the latter is probably the more immediate uh, goal. Okay. But, I, but my understanding, uh, based on the reading, is that ultimately that's where they want to get, is to where you can have at least wow. a, a local blood hub. Yeah. You know, whereas if it's... It's like a 3D printer of blood. Yeah, like at the very least, you're like shipping it in from the, the, the closest military base as opposed mm. to all the way around the world. Okay. Um, they received uh, $1.95 million uh, for the project uh, uh, for, through DARPA. Mm. And uh, last that it was really reported on, uh, they had shipped off samples to DARPA and were hoping to uh, up production to bring costs down from $5,000 per unit of blood to around 1000 per unit. And just to give everyone a reminder, one unit equals about a pint, and the average human contains eight to ten pints. Wow. Yeah. So in order to make enough for a human, it's, it's like at their low end going to be eight to $10,000 worth of blood. Yeah, and the average soldier needs six units during trauma treatment. You know, because you're talking about situations where a lot of blood is lost. Yeah. I wonder how that compares to just the, like, good old, you know, uh, Red Cross, you know, going and giving your blood volunteer type thing. Well, I mean, of course, then again, you're dealing with all different blood types. Then. Yeah, that's true. And and then a, and then a rigorous screening process mm-hmm. to figure out which samples are appliable. And shipping. Yeah, and shipping, which, again, hurts the shelf life. Yeah. So the process here is pretty interesting. Scientists harvest hemiotopedic cells from the umbilical cords and via a process called farming, that's P-H-A-R-M-I-N-G, uh, they turn one umbilical cord into 20 units of, uh, of packaged blood. Wow. And this takes place over the course of three days, according to initial reports uh, through uh, Wired magazine. Where are they getting all the umbilical cords from? Babies, man. They- <laughs> If you can, if babe, you find babies where the parents are not going to, um, you know, dry it and feed yeah, it or yeah. feed it themselves, uh, then yeah, the umbilical cord is a has a, has a lot of valuable uh, material in it. So this is a thing that, as a uh, someone who doesn't have kids, that I'm woefully unaware of. That's like when you go in and and have the procedure and everything for giving birth. Is there just like a you know on the paperwork? There's a box that you check that's something like, I want the umbilical cord. I assume. I mean, uh, we did not go through that process with my son, so oh, yeah. I'm not. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how it how it rolls out in, yeah. in real time. But I'm guessing there's a box that you, pan- in a panic to, you know, pre-birth right. mode, you check or you don't. Check. Or otherwise, there's just like a biohazard bag filled with umbilical cords that they then ship off to these I guess guys. So, yeah. Huh. So ultimately, though, we're talking about the rapid expansion of umbilical cord blood uh, sped up even more through the use of what's called Nanex technology. This is a nanofiber-based structure that mimics bone marrow, and bone marrow is where blood cells generally multiply and, mm. at, a, at a greater rate. Huh. So, yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's it's crazy science fiction-y, and, and I think would lend itself well to a little tweaking. I mean, you're talking about... Right. Ultimately, the discarded pieces of a baby that are used to create uh, blood for soldiers in the field yeah. and potentially vampires, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, well, that's where this would naturally head. It's a daybreaker situation. You yeah. make these soldiers, they become vampires, and then they vampirize the rest of the population. So it's a planet of vampires. I wonder if vampires prefer O-negative as a universal donor, or does that mean it's, it's too- probably too common, right? Yeah. It's like the Coca-Cola of, <laughs> of blood. 
All right, so that's artificial blood. Uh, but then there's the use of uh, healing factor nanoparticles in the blood. All right, so this is straight up Wolverine. Healing yeah. factor is right out of the X-Men comics. Exactly. This is where we're getting into at least the near future version of that. Okay. Um, so there are different um, substances that can be used as a coagulant to help with excessive bleeding. Of course, the best uh, way to deal with excessive bleeding on the surface is to apply pressure when it's a wound that can be treated in that manner sure. to you know die or a, a wound. Um, but a 2009 study published in the journal Science Translational Medicine introduced the use of injectable synthetic nanoparticles or nanoplatelets that curb bleeding. So hmm. normally, blood platelets at a wound site bind together in order to plug that wound, right? Yeah. These, na- these nanoplatelets, what they do is they mimic platelet structure. So they augment the process, bonding with natural blood platelets and acting as a nanostructure. So it's like throwing in a bunch of, um, a bunch of extras to, yeah. to say you're to television taping and you, the crowd's looking kind of thin, right. get some extras in there, make right. it look nice and thick for the cameras. Right. So, Same yeah, that's scenario. what I'm kind of thinking, that it's like a thickening process, like almost like a blood plasma, as yeah, I understand yeah, it. Okay. And what's more, though, this uh, the, the best part about this is, again, not the use of this at, at uh, skin level, mm-hmm. but the ability to uh, to get down and stop deep and internal bleeding more easily. Uh, again, you can't just apply pressure if you're dealing with bleeding inside the body as easily. Yeah, there's got to be so many uh, potential hazards with this, though, too, I would imagine, given the, like, I mean, like, our blood is, like, it's got that Goldilocks factor to it, right? It has to be, like, just right. Mm-hmm. It can't be too thick and it can't be too thin. Otherwise, there's all, there's a whole host of problems I'll get into later that, you know, can affect your body. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm instantly thinking to, uh, back to uh, last season of The Nick. Uh, oh, I've only seen a couple episodes. Yeah, yeah. there's some pretty horrific. Um, it's like, uh, you know, turn of the century hospital, mm-hmm. a brilliant surgeon. And at one point he gets obsessed with blood transfusions and trying to figure out like what's the key. And right. It's really rough stuff. But um, but in this case, with these uh, particularly particular nanoplatelets, uh, they found that the stuff um, has halved bleeding time in wounded rats. Wow. And just a couple of years later, in 2011, the uh, Massachusetts General Hospital Center for Engineering and Medicine developed a way to deliver nanospheres containing keratinocyte growth factor, or KGF, suspended in a fibrin gel. Uh, So again, the advantage here would be to deal with the uh, targeted treatment of deep wounds as opposed to trying to treat the whole body and just get at it. Um, so this is right, right. So the difference between this and Wolverine is that like you don't just heal immediately from any wound. The, you have a wound and then they apply right, these yeah. nanospheres to you. And the same with the nanoplatelets too. It right. Yeah, it wouldn't be a matter of as we see in the, the creepypasta. It wouldn't be yeah. like we've changed the blood of the soldier. Exactly. No, it's this is a way to treat the blood of a soldier at a wound site and try to uh, speed up the healing. <laughs> Well, okay, so you may recall that at the top of when we were talking about this experiment that I mentioned, they had three particular chemicals that they mentioned. I assumed these were fictional, but I decided to look them up. Nomofungin, peproformidine, and comuncin. Turns out, at least as far as I can tell, that they are real things. Uh, however... There were a few links that definitely looked like they were fake that uh, were potential. Uh, I, I'm going to guess like 
fake sources to back up the creepypasta story. Mm-hmm. But then uh, there were a lot of legitimate academic chemistry articles about these that were behind firewalls I couldn't access. But I did get access to one that was called Synthetic Studies Toward Commune Sins, and it was published in the Israel, uh, Israel Journal of Chemistry in 2011. And okay. this, I could barely understand it because it was written in such deep chemistry language. However, this is what I got out of it. Uh, these are basically the same chemicals. They're like synth- synthesized chemicals that are isolated from a marine fungal strain of a penicilla, uh, penicillum species. And that there's a possible use for these as an insecticide. They're also cytotoxic against certain tumor cells. Mm-hmm. So I think that they're being investigated for those possible applications. Okay. Uh, and they were first isolated in 1993. So yeah, they really exist. It sounds like it doesn't sound like their usage though is to, you know, plug up blood yeah. or make blood freeze or anything like that. But well, I mean, I guess we're looking at the standard trick here, right? You, uh, you draw a little science terminology out, you throw it in there in a way where you're not too specific and it's harder for the, the average reader to look at it and call BS, uh, and so it gives it that sciencey vibe and, and yeah, allows I mean, you to invest a little more in the creepy bust. They did a great job. Uh, whoever wrote this did a great job with the, that application of, of these chemicals because not only were they like difficult to, to find information on, but also they're so relatively new in the, in, in the research that's being done on them that there isn't a whole lot out there. I guess it could be plausible that, you know, somebody comes up with this magical synthetic chemical that can freeze your blood. Um, and real quick, let's just talk about what happens when your blood is thickened or frozen in certain situations. Uh, first of all, it's very rare that you could freeze a human being's blood while it was still inside their body. The hypothalamus constantly tries to keep the core of our bodies warm. So it constricts our blood supply, uh, supply to the core of our bodies, essentially, uh, removing it from the extremities if necessary. So that's why you get those instances of like frostbite where people's fingers or toes fall off and stuff like that. Um, But even in cryonics, when they're going to freeze somebody's body, your blood isn't frozen. Uh, From what I understand reading about it, your body is usually injected with something called heparin, which is an anticoagulant. And the reason why is to prevent blood clotting while you're under, I don't know what's the proper term, uh, under freeze <laughs> <laughs> on the slab, when you're in the know. freezer. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then lastly, there is a, uh, there, there are a couple different, uh, uh, diseases that lead to blood thickening. One in particular is called Hughes syndrome, and that's an abnormal immune system response that causes your blood to thicken. Basically, the idea here is it sounds similar to uh, the nanotech we were talking about earlier. It causes your blood platelets to clump together, but this can be very dangerous, like I was saying earlier, uh, because it can lead to thrombosis, which can subsequently lead to something like a heart attack or a stroke or I suppose even an aneurysm. But no cannibalism. Uh, Nope, they don't have that yet. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, now we're going to turn to the third section here. And in this one, we're really drawing on two different uh, creepypastas, which we'll we'll, we'll refer to here in short. One is the Harbinger experiment, and the other one is Gateway of the Mind. And they both resolve, beep, and they both revolve around the same thing, really. Yeah. So 
the Harbinger experiment, uh, this creepypasta is, this one's a bit long, and it, it kind of reads like, uh, you know, average weird fiction story, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the basics here is that some men are prolonged isolation experiment with uh, an occult twist. Uh, some entity that's summoned into the bodies of the patients by this uh, mysterious Dr. Zimmerman. Zimmerman wants to prove the existence of the spirit realm by trapping a spirit in a human body, a human body that he's in- injected with a compound that somehow prevents the spirit from leaving again while the host is still alive. Right, right. And yeah, I, if I remember this one correctly, like Zimmerman is like fantastically rich mm-hmm. and like uh, does all of this at like an off-site hidden bunker underground where he's like hired his own private army and team of researchers, yeah. right? Yeah. So you can imagine how it ends up, right? Uh, right. Madness, uh, just like death. Every, yeah. yeah. <laughs> And now the the other one is Gateway of the Mind. Uh, do you do you want to roll the roll? The yeah, this one's listening? an interesting one. So the idea with this is that in 1983, there's this team of scientists. The story refers to them as deeply pious scientists. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, and that the idea is that they want to prove the existence of God. So their theory is that. Uh, without sensory input that human beings would be able to perceive the presence of God. So, and that they interfere with some kind of holy signal, right? So what they do is they take this elderly volunteer and they surgically cut out nerves so he can't see, hear, taste, smell, or feel. Uh, and he can, he, he can't communicate, but he can like, he can clearly talk. He sort think, of right? like yells. Yeah. yeah, I don't think he knows what's going on around him, but he like yells out things about what he's experiencing. But he's basically alone with his thoughts. And yeah, what happens is he goes totally crazy. He says that he's talking to ghosts. He's able to like use information from the ghosts to like uh prove that there's something supernatural going on to the researchers, right? By like revealing secrets about them that nobody else would know. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, he tells them that he's a uh, He's had a conversation with God, and and God has abandoned us. Oh, okay. Well, I feel like it kind of loses a little steam there at the end. With <laughs> like, like maybe the message that he revealed shouldn't be uh, so explicit. But I'm I'm uh, I'm nitpicking here. Yeah, they sort of like uh, this the 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 author or authors of this creepy pasta. It seems like God is sort of cagey about getting in touch with this guy who doesn't have his five senses like the ghosts show up pretty quickly yeah but god like waits until like the absolute last minute and all he does is just say like hey uh, i've abandoned you guys <laughs> i'm on vacation I'm out. for the week yeah so both of these on one level they deal with this idea of like let's scientifically prove the afterlife and yeah. And there have been a, a number of experiments and sort of pseudo-experiments that have gone into that. We have a whole episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind that deals with soul-weighing experiments that try to show that the soul has weight and therefore there is a soul, there is some part of us that's immortal and survives yeah. death. Um, there, there's real science behind that, too. Isn't there, like, a particular, like... I, I remember, like, that there's, like, a very specific weight that they said that... Oh, like, yeah, yeah, there's the whole... disappears when you die or something like that, right? Yeah, I think 21 grams is the, the number... Those, as we discussed in the, the, that episode, uh, which I'll link to on the landing page for this episode, uh, you know, there's some science applied. It's very yeah. rough and uneven. There are a lot of problems. There's some more oh, recent okay. uh, theories that are interesting. But both of these experiments ultimately deal with isolation, yeah. right? What happens when someone is isolated from uh, from sensory input? Particularly uh, in the case of the experience we're going to discuss here, you put them in a room. You put them in solitary confinement. Right, yeah. What happens when you deprive us of our environment that we've evolved to thrive within? What happens to the mind? 
Yeah, and so I think it's worth mentioning here, uh, before we get into the science of it, of what happens when you're uh, deprived of your senses, and for that matter, social interaction, uh, that both Robert and I have gone into sensory deprivation tanks before. So we have personal experience with mm-hmm. this. Uh, in my case, uh, I didn't hallucinate, uh, which seems to be a common symptom that people have. Uh, but it was enjoyable. It was yeah. peaceful. Uh, you basically lay inside a big tank that's dark, laying on top of salt water. Uh, for, in my case, it was about an hour long. Yeah, mine too. Uh, and... Um, you know, the, because of the water, your ears are plugged up. Or no, you, I, I wore earplugs, but there, the, the water also keeps you from really being able to hear anything. Uh, you can't see anything. You don't really feel anything other than the water, uh, and the taste of yeah. salty air. <laughs> yeah. When I went into it, I wasn't really thinking about how salty it was going to be. Yeah. And how the, there's a good point, a good portion of the float experience that is spent. Uh, reacting to the feel of the salt water, mm-hmm. the smell of the salt water, and uh, and just sort of getting past that. Yeah, I guess I should clarify that there's so much salt water that you float to the top. Yeah. Like so you're, it's you're not just salty. laying in it. Yeah, like you instantly are acquainted with any random nicks or scratches or itches <laughs> on your body because now yeah. they have tons of salt pressing up against them. Yep. So we've had a number of uh, of studies that have looked at at what happens when you. Um, Put somebody in solitary confinement when you isolate someone from stimuli. Uh, there's a 2013 piece on, from Wired Magazine by Brandon Keim uh, titled The Horrible Psychology of Solitary Confinement. And it takes a nice look at a horrifying topic, pointing out that solitary confinement has been shown to make prisoners extremely anxious, to make them angry, make them hallucinate, experience mood swings and flatness, the loss of impulse control. And this is all on top of aggravating any pre-existing mental illnesses. Hmm. Um, so they, we've looked at solitary confinement many times from a scientific standpoint in, in the past, and it generally comes in waves, responding to trends and concerns related to modern incarcer- incarceration. So in the mid-1800s, there was concern and interest in this. In the 1950s, it popped up again, due in part uh, as a reaction to the Korean War, mm-hmm. uh, prisoners of war, and how they were uh, uh, allegedly treated. And then it uh, it rose up again in the 1980s, uh, with you know some research spread out in between. But those are sort of the big periods. So, uh, I have to say, like, every time, like, I read a fictional account or watch a TV show or a movie where it's a prison setting and somebody does something wrong and gets sent to solitary, my first thought is always, like, that sounds great. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, you get to be away from all the craziness and you sit all by yourself in a room and hang out and sleep and you're alone with your thoughts. However, I don't think it's as peaceful as I'm imagining it to be. It's based on these experiments, right? And yeah. and also on other things we know. Oh, about yeah. And just based on accounts where people just talk about it as just this brutalization of the mind. Because essentially, in absence of stimuli, we focus on what little stimuli there is. Mm -hmm. Our brains are made for a a world of, you know, fixed and moving objects of of varied environmental uh, actions going on, not a limited cell. So you get in there, your brain ends up chewing on itself. Uh, Maybe it's some detail in the cell. Maybe it's... um, it's something in your memory, yeah. but your brain finds something to focus on and sort of recreate the world you've been robbed of out of its limited pieces. And this is the Hannibal Lecter style, like yeah. uh, like forming, what does he call it, his memory palace? Yeah, I think he, doesn't he paint the walls with uh, to, to resemble Florence or something it like that? It depends on the iteration of yeah. Hannibal, but yeah. Uh, in the 
TV show, which just ended, uh, I believe once they actually incarcerate him, like he just constructs it all inside his okay. head. Like he can like, because he's such a crazed genius, he can like go inside his memory palace and it's like he's in a, a church in Florence or something like that. Yeah. So like basically that's what your brain wants to do. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes you don't have, you don't have that rich tapestry to, to, to draw on. What you have are maybe some traumatic memories yeah. from your incarceration. Maybe it's, you know, some weird markings on the wall or something that's troubling you in the back of your mind. Mm-hmm. And that's what gets blown Fixate. up. That's what is blown out into your new virtual world. Yeah. Well, so io9 actually has a really nice summary piece, less about um, the isolation part, but more about the sensory deprivation. And guess who came up in, at the beginning of their article? It was the good old John C. Lilly uh, character that ah. o- often seems to come up on stuff to blow your mind. In fact, we've talked recently mm-hmm. about maybe doing an episode just about him. And you you were the one who told me, I think, that uh, he was the inspiration for Altered States, right? Yes. Which is kind of my go-to uh, pop culture movie reference for uh, sensory deprivation tanks. He claimed that uh, when he was in a sensory deprivation tank, it allowed him to make contact with creatures from another dimension, uh, and they're from a civilization that was far more advanced than our own. Uh, so that is, I guess, kind of close to the Harbinger story, uh, although I don't know necessarily... Uh, that John C. Lilly is uh, a reliable source. Um, <laughs> he is uh, he's a kind of a problematic source, yeah. but uh, a fascinating one. Um, but hallucinations are absolutely real. Um, people, ha- we definitely know people have hallucinations when they are deprived of their senses. Uh, renowned physicist Richard Feynman has described having them when he was in a sensory deprivation chamber. We have lots of examples of studies that have been done. Uh, uh, both meditation and sem- sensory deprivation are linked to decreased alpha waves and increased theta waves within our brains. These are the same things that we we find when we're in a sleeping state. And in fact, we're going to find uh, as we kind of go through the sensory deprivation stuff that there's a lot of connections to what we were talking about earlier with the Russian sleep experiment story of uh, sleep. So there's a connection between the isolation and the sleep stuff, uh, at least in how our brains work. Uh, there's an investigation, uh, in 2009 that showed that some people within 15 minutes of sensory deprivation will have hallucinations triggered. Uh, and however, I will qualify it by saying that this particular study, they, the, the, the people that they got for this study purposely were scored low on what is called a revised hallucination scale. I'd love to know that test, how they, <laughs> how they, how they determine that. Basically what this meant was like these people I think were in like the lower 20 percentile uh-huh. of people who, uh, are, are likely to have hallucinations. Now it's also worth noting that, um, that this kind of isolation warps our perception of time. Mm. And, you know, part of that, you get into the whole just sort of relative nature of time, right? Yeah. An hour spent in a boring waiting room is is far different than an hour spent at the the carnival, right? Yep. Uh, in 1993, a, a sociologist and caving enthusiast, Marezio Montalbini, spent 366 days in an Italian cave to replicate a long, solitary space flight. Oof. You know, what would be the experience of a staying in a little tube on your way to Mars, right? Uh, When he emerged, he was convinced only 219 days had passed uh, 
uh, instead of 366. So his sleep wave cycles had nearly doubled in this uh, in this scenario. Yeah, so, so there's another connection. Yeah. Your senses are inherently connect, uh, connected, I guess, to your circadian rhythm. That gets back to what I was talking about earlier with light and jet lag. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another uh, crazy uh, story that we have that's an instance of this. In 1961, it's a French geologist named Michel Sifra who studied an underground glacier beneath the French Alps, and he ended up staying for two months instead of his uh, anticipated two weeks. And what happened was he basically decided to stop doing his study and live like an animal. That's quote. I think that's his quote, live like an animal. Uh, And when he was tested back on the surface, when his team finally got him out, they found that it took him five minutes to count to 120 seconds. Huh. So it definitely interferes with our perceptions of time. Yeah, and therefore also ends up uh, warping our sleep right. and, uh, and the, the way that plays into uh, how we use our time. Uh, for reasons that we're still not sure about, it it, um, it it really blows out your sleep cycle. So most underground dwellers shift to a 48-hour cycle, hmm. 36 hours of activity followed by 12 hours of sleep. Oof. I don't know. If, well, I, I suppose if I was in the right environment, I would shift over to that, but I don't know that I could... Be awake for 36 hours straight. Um, one of the key series of experiments here, and again, I mentioned the you know the the, the different uh, boom periods for uh, for isolation experimentation. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this was McGill University Medical Center in Montreal, where uh, psychologist Donald Hebb uh, led several key isolation experiments in the late 50s. Again, this is after the Korean War, responding to to some POW treatment. Uh, volunteer students were put in soundproof cubicles. They even gave them, uh, uh, translucent uh, visors, uh, cotton gloves, cardboard cuffs to, you know, keep them from feeling yeah. in a way that doesn't involve slicing nerves. They gave them U-shaped pillows, turned on some white noise, and they found that the test subjects became restless in mere hours, and in some cases became anxious and emotional. Uh, their abilities in, uh, in arithmetic and word association tests quickly, uh, took a dive. And then, uh, the hallucinations, points of light, lines or shapes, eventually bizarre scenes such as, and these are at actual scenes. These hallucinations the are crazy. Yeah. These are like the kind of urban legend hallucinations you hear, like, well, such and such kid took LSD and then he saw this for the rest of his life or whatever, <laughs> right? Like, these are nuts. Yeah. Speaking of nuts, yeah, the first one is <laughs> squirrels marching with sacks over their shoulders. Yeah. Another one, processions of eyeglasses filing down a street. One one uh, person only saw dogs. Another one only saw babies, um, and they had no control over the visuals. They're just rolling yeah. out. Yeah. So this this reminds me of two things. I mean, first of all, what we said earlier about the brain focusing on a one little thing. Yeah. It just it has to fill up your world, and it ends up filling your world up with a babies. babies. <laughs> just uh, yeah, and I don't. I think it was like lots of babies. It wasn't just like a baby or two. It was like I think this person was just hallucinating. Hordes of babies. Yeah. Which sounds like the scariest horror movie never made. <laughs> and again, it's like they had no control over it. So this is the kind of, I, I, perhaps some people who engage in meditation or yoga can relate to this. But uh, when I am finishing yoga, sometimes when I'm in Shavasana, I get to experience some level of hallucination 
that I don't have control over. It's uh-huh. often just lights and stuff, you know, but, sure, yeah. but you're just sort of watching it transpire. You're not directly influencing what you're seeing. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I've had similar situations before, although nothing audible, which is apparently what happened in this McGill study, right? Yeah, there were some audible hallucinations. They're hearing music. They're hearing sounds, tactile hallucinations where they, they, they touch the doorknob and they think they feel a shock or another person said that they felt pellets hitting their skin. Hmm. Yeah, so basically the gist of this is that they weren't even able to finish this study. They wanted it to be several weeks long, but everyone became so distressed and had so much trouble that they just ended the study. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, they only lasted a few days in isolation. None of them lasted more than a week, and they reported, you know, they were unable to think clearly the whole time. They were actually more susceptible to suggestion after they got out. So, for instance, one of the things that they did was suggest to them uh while they were sorry while they th- their their senses were deprived they suggested to them that ghosts were real and then when they got out of the the situation they asked them questions about the paranormal and these people were now more likely to think that ghosts were real uh mm-hmm. which lent credence to this idea that you know there was this paranoid idea that the soviets were using sensory deprivation in some kind of way to brainwash people right like a manchurian candidate kind of situation and so that subsequently led to even more research in this area uh, also done at at mcgill Uh, this guy d ewan cameron he was the head of mcgill's psychiatry department in the 50s and he was inspired by heb's work so he began employing sensory deprivation as part of a technique called psychic driving. This is something we should probably do an episode on. Uh, and his unsuccessful attempt to reprogram the minds of mentally ill patients. So basically, he justified this saying, you know, this th- this was uh, something that was sort of necessary so that we could better understand the mind in lieu of these Soviet brainwashed characters. Um, ultimately, the, the patients, some of them ended up suing him uh, afterwards. And uh, in 1956, he wrote in the American Journal of Psychiatry that he would hypnotize schizophrenic patients under the stimulant drugs and after prolonged psychological isolation. So like we were saying earlier, like, let's say you're a prisoner and you're put in solitary confinement and you're already mentally ill, like that's not going to help the situation. This guy was like doing that to people on purpose and then throwing drugs into the mix. Mm. Uh, and then finally, uh, you know, ultimately like this is a real ethics violation. I think this is one of those things that probably, uh, led to the strict adherence to institutional review boards that we have Nowadays, in most studies, these people were sick, they had mental illness, and they wanted to get help, but instead they were just subjected to this kind of brutal research uh, that seemed to be largely stimulated by the Cold War. Just hit one more study uh, on all this. In 2008, psychologist Ian Robbins created, recreated Hebb's experiments uh, in, uh, in collaboration with the BBC. And in this, they isolated six volunteers for 48 hours in soundproof rooms, all this taking place in a, a former um, nuclear bunker. Uh, this sounds fairly close to uh, yeah, the Harbinger. It does. And they've had similar results. Uh, anxiety, extreme emotions, paranoia, significant deterioration in their mental functioning, and, of course, crazy hallucinations. Yeah, so the, I wanted to list these hallucinations because they're just as bonkers as mm-hmm. the first batch. 
One person hallucinated a heap of 5,000 empty oyster shells. Okay. And then there were other things like a snake, zebras, tiny cars, the room taking off, I think like flying, a bunch of mosquitoes, and then this one, that there were fighter planes flying and buzzing around within the room. So, yeah. So the deprivation can definitely uh, twist your mind. Yeah, you remove human from its natural sleep cycles. You remove a human from its natural environment, and you change the expression of the mind. You change our experience of reality. And that is ultimately a very terrifying concept uh, to, to wrap our heads around. And it lends yeah. itself so well to uh, to to horror. And oh, yeah, pasta. absolutely, yeah. Um yeah, I guess like ultimately what I come back to with the harbinger and the gateway of the mind is the idea of being able to just sever our connections to our senses from our uh, consciousness. Mm-hmm. That is very scary. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I, to the point that I don't know that I can imagine it. Yeah, I mean, it, it significantly changes what it is to be human. And mm, that's, and right. you know, ultimately stories like this, that's what it's about. It's about exploring the human condition, mm-hmm. uh, though taking a more frightening approach to that exploration. All right, so there you have it. Uh, one of everybody's favorite episodes from last Halloween season. And again, look for a new Creepypasta episode as well as some new Halloween content to come out in the weeks ahead. This is really big t- time of the year for us. We get, always get real excited. Yeah, it's our favorite time of the year. In fact, uh, I'm going to take this opportunity to plug our new season of Monster Science oh, produced yes, yeah. by Robert and our producer, Tyler, in-house. Some really good stuff coming out of that. You'll find that on our social media feeds. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We'll be all over that in October. And as always, check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all of our podcast episodes with landing pages, with links out to uh, related materials. Uh, you'll find uh, it's also links out to social media. You'll find blogs, videos, everything. It's, it's recently been redesigned. It's getting updates constantly. Check it out if you haven't already. And if you want to write us about your favorite creepypasta so we might cover it in one of our future episodes, you can always get us the old-fashioned way at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 